I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. Your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 93. Today in the show, we're discussing the final, most important moments of the hunt. The moment of truth. The shot. Alright, welcome to the Wire to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today we're talking about the moment of truth. Those final moments leading up to a shot in those simple few seconds that sometimes can feel like an eternity leading up to you pulling that trigger or releasing an arrow. And that's the shot. Today we're going to be talking about the challenges that Dan and I have had when it comes to handling these moments. We're going to be talking about ways that we have and others can try to become a better shot. We're going to talk about buck fever and a whole lot more. And frankly, I think this is going to be an interesting discussion because it's something that, you know, both I think I've struggled with at times. I think Dan maybe has struggled with this at times. And I can almost guarantee that everybody listening to everybody that's listening to this today probably has struggled with some aspect of this too. And, you know, regardless of, of all the tactics, all the tips, all the new strategies that we've talked about on this show, you know, whether you have a great stand location or a dynamite food plot or trail camera pictures of a buck for, for 10 years, none of that matters if you can't master the final moment of truth. So that, my friends, is where we're headed today. But before we get into all of that, Dan, Mr. Co-host, we missed you last week. What's new? Yeah, I had to, uh, I had to text Ben and tell him I was sorry that I wasn't able to, to attend the podcast. But um, I, I'm going to answer that question by asking you a question. I love it when okay. you do that. All right. So <laughs> this is where the editing starts. Yeah. Okay. No, but um, every once in a while, you t- you like babysit your what your sister in law's kids, right? Yeah. Yes, I do. All right. So um, how how young is the youngest one? Uh, she's a little over one year old. I think. Okay. Still in diapers. Oh yeah. Okay. So have you ever witnessed a blowout? on that on that girl so not on that girl but the second to youngest when she was that age was once sitting in my lap oh yeah and she had a blowout 
Okay. So speaking of blowouts, last week my <laughs> my son had a little bit of a, a bug. He had a fever. It ran really high, and we got him to the doctor, and he had some kind of I don't know sickness or some bug, and they gave him some medicine. He seems to be doing better now, but Good. every time he would crap, it was in the mass quantities. I mean, like. <laughs> I mean, just like blowing out the sides. He had it. He was laying uh. down smiling. And then I, I go to pick him up and it's all the way up his back into the back of his head. Uh. Like, And I'm just like, there's no other thing to do oh except to put him in the bathtub. Ugh. Just like full clothes, disrobe him right there. There's nothing else you can do except give him a bath. I can't even, I don't know how you deal with that. <laughs> Five straight days of that. Holy smokes. <laughs> it was gross. But in a way, as oh. a dad, I'm, I'm kind of proud. Uh, you know what? If there were to be – if I had to like look at a lineup of kids, like a bunch of babies, and then I had to point at one child in that lineup of who would have the most blowouts, if I saw Mac, your son, I'd say that's a blowout kid right there. <laughs> that, kid, that kid blows out diapers. <laughs> he takes big dumps for sure. <laughs> in all seriousness, your, Mac is like – he, 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 there's no kid I've ever seen that looks more like it should be your child than Mac. <laughs> he just seems like he's going to be a, a big dumping, huge dude who's going to be crazy. <laughs> <laughs> That's your son. You know what, kid? You got talent. I think you're going to be a huge dumper when you grow up. Oh, man. But I love you posted a picture on Facebook or Instagram or something the other day where he's like, pressed up against a glass door like oh, yeah. licking it or something i'm like oh, wow yeah. I, <laughs> that's my kid that's your I kid love him. that's pretty funny so uh sounds like parenting is still going well <laughs> oh yeah it's uh it's definitely a learning experience something every, it's different every day you know oh yeah i uh i i don't know how you do it like you said sometimes i babysit my nieces and nephew and there's four of them um one is like a little bit over one i think one's a little bit over two one is five and then the other just turned 12 um but lots of times when we have all four it's just like i just kind of stand in the corner with like wide eyes and i'm just like uh i don't know what to do <laughs> it's just chaos you should get, you should get like a, a squirt gun and every time you they you know you see them do something that you don't want them to do you just say no and you squirt them <laughs> with it like a cat Get out of the plants and you squirt them. All right, that could make parenting fun. <laughs> All I'm right. going to try that. I'm sure it's uh, – I don't see anything too wrong with that. Right? A little water in the face never hurt anyone. Yeah. Okay, oh, so geez. so what else? What else happened? Uh, well, since we last chatted, we both went shed hunting right. a couple times. I, uh, I, in the last episode, alluded to the fact that you went shed hunting before last week's episode, but I didn't really give the listeners any details. So should we, uh, should we regale – the audience with our shed hunting exploits as of late should i tell a yarn please do please do okay. yarn away well first first i'm gonna keep the last not this weekend but last weekend okay last weekend i went shed hunting found three sheds i'm gonna keep this part sh- short found yeah. three sheds um one was to a buck that i have been chasing for like four years i i named him ryan eiberg after one of my buddies nothing gigantic like he's not a huge scoring buck but he's really wide and he's i think this year he's gonna if he survived i think he's gonna be if my math is right probably eight years old an eight-year-old buck but he wasn't looking too good so i'm, I'm happy I, I matched up uh i found last one year ago from the day i found it basically i found 
his other side. So I have a match set from 2014. That's crazy how that works out. Yep. Now that's not, that's not really the issue. All right. That, I mean, that's great, but this weekend, right. Yeah. Took the entire family shed hunting. Saw that. That looked like a chore. Yeah. I mean, it, it was, it was fun. It, it was nice out, got the kids outside. So I, you know, you, you think, Hey, let's walk. I'm going to walk them through the thickest, nastiest stuff to see if they really like it. You know, <laughs> that sounds like a good idea. Right. And it, and it was, it, it, but this, this whole thing backfired on me because now, and I love my wife to death, but now she's like, Oh my gosh, this, this is kind of fun. Let's do that again this weekend. Oh, wow. No, uh, Mark. No? No. no. Guess how many sheds we found this weekend or this week when I took them out. Zero. My, my sheds. guess is zero. Yeah, that's right. Zero sheds. Now I love my family and I dedicate <laughs> a lot of time to my family, but I see but where like, this is going. <laughs> but like, you know, daddy wants a little shed hunting time and he wants to go out and haul ass. Solo, and, solo shed hunting. Yes. Yeah, solo shed hunting, you know, where I can actually find the sheds yeah. and not walk like in the middle of a field edge and have to pick a kid up every time she's, Oh daddy, it's muddy. Okay. Well, Hey, get used to it because if you're going to hang around with me, you're going to be dirty. That kind, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. So yeah. now my wife likes shed hunting. So what's your strategy? I think I'm going to have to like uh, hire somebody to like release some dogs, like some really mean dogs on her <laughs> and like scare her. So she'll never want to go shed hunting. Again. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, that is one way to go about it. <laughs> you, know, you know, here's the deal. I, th- I think my wife would love to go with me when it's just the two of us. So I'm going to have to try to find a babysitter and that way I can show her really what shed hunting is all about. It's not, it's not just a casual for me. It's not just like a really casual walk through the, through the timber, you know, looking at the birds and the bees and all that stuff. It's, you got one, one goal and it's to find bone. Yeah. 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 I agree. It's, uh, it's fun to be out there, but at the same time, you got to be focused on the task at hand. That's for sure. Right. Hey, you, it sounds like you had a, a good weekend. Yeah. Yeah. I've been, I've been putting some serious miles on the boots since we last talked, um, two weekends ago. I, I didn't talk too much about this on the last episode, but two weekends ago was shed hunting with some friends here in Michigan, had my best day in Michigan ever found four, including two sheds, which are my two biggest. So that was, that was sweet. Um, you know, they're not massive sheds, but they're, you know, both like between 40 and 50 inches probably. So for a Michigan shed, that's, that's a nice piece of bone. Uh, so that was cool. Um, and then, yeah, this past weekend I went to Iowa. We were all bummed that you couldn't join us. Um, but blowouts, yeah, blowouts, that'll do it. Uh, but yeah, had a blast. I went out Thursday night with, uh, Corey and then we met my buddies, Ross, well, Ross, Ross Haas from episode number 91 and Peter and Ross's wife, Kendall. And so the five of us did a lot of walking over, we walked the farm that I hunted last year and the farm that Corey hunts and a couple different spots um, from the other guys. And total, between the group of us, we found, I think, 15 sheds. Um, Corey found seven of those. I found five of them. So for the, the two of us from Michigan, we, we came out with 12. So it wasn't a bad trip. It wasn't our best trip to Iowa as far as sheds, but it was uh, it was a pretty decent one. Um and it was a lot of fun. Just it was it was great to be with the with a group of guys out there, and uh, you know a lot of laughs, a lot of miles, and uh, some sheds to boot. So, Corey, coach any? Um, you know he sorta did. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was just kind of gonna be a joke. No, the long no, fo- he poached a shed. No, but this is the thing. What's really funny about it is, and and 
and I kid. I mean, I, I don't I don't call him like he's not really poached shed, but he sort of did. But now he's feeling guilty about it. So this is pretty funny. So we're we're shed hunting this ridge, and somehow you know, as it goes, when there's a bunch of people, there's four of us. You kind of get separated. You try to space out, and we're trying to work this ridge kind of uniformly, but we got kind of spaced out and, and lost track of each other. But I'm in this tangle of briars and cedars and crap, as in, and I'm pushing through it. And I'm just about to get out of the cedars, and then I hear Corey yell, got one. And I'm like, oh, nice. And then he's like, as soon as he said, got one, like the word one, like trailed off. And it was kind of like, got one. And then he's like, although, and then I pop out of the cedars, and he's right there. And I'm like, although what? And he's like, well, it was right in your line. You were about to step on it. <laughs> you are about to see it. He's like, sorry, man. <laughs> like, you and your wandering eyes. <laughs> he's uh. He's going to get a complex from us giving him shit about this, you know. I know. I, I had to tell him, we're just kidding, Corey. It's okay. <laughs> it was funny. It was it was a cool antler. Um, it was uh, just a three-point side, but like a nice, big, heavy. Like he'd been a, a nice six-pointer, probably like a just a really good two-year-old probably, but a cool buck for a six-point. And if he, you know, if he kept that basic six-point frame, like I would love to kill a big, heavy six-pointer. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, like, like that buck six shooter I, I killed a few years ago, the first year I hunted him, he was just a big, like 120 inch, 118 inch six pointer. And that was a sweet, cool, big frame. So, yeah. So we, we found some sheds and nothing giant. Um, uh, Corey found on my farm or the farm I hunt, he found all the nice ones on my farm. <laughs> um, like a bunch of like in those like mid forties to low fifties type sheds. I just found a lot of dinks this weekend. Um, but it was still cool. Um, there were some bucks still holding. We, we saw a few deer throughout the weekend that were still holding. So I don't know if there's still some antlers yet to hit the ground that we weren't able to find, obviously. So it was a good trip, though. And what? Not this weekend, but next weekend going down to southern Ohio. And that one, that one I'm really excited about because those are where the, the bucks I really know are at. So Perfect. Yeah, should be some exciting stuff to come soon. A lot, lot of shed hunting left to do. Yeah, yeah, lots of. Are you gonna be able to get out much more? I think I'm gonna go this weekend, uh, maybe Saturday, and then the following weekend is my. And I have a feeling that I'm just gonna find a lot of chewed up sheds, but uh, the following weekend is my Friday night, all day Saturday, Sunday morning shed hunt. So I'll be walking the entire weekend. Nice. I didn't think you were going to be able to do that. I saw somewhere you said that you might only get like one full day or something. So I'm glad to hear you'll get a, a big one now. Yep. I weaseled my, I'm basically helping my wife at some kind of fabric trade show. And in, you know, for trade, I get the shed hunting weekend. Nice. That's legit. Speaking of yeah. your wife's fabric, my wife bought a blanket from your wife. Did you know that? I did not. When did she buy it? Uh, like a month ago or something, but, um, we, we got it for a friend's baby shower. Okay. Um, so yeah, we just got that. That was pretty cool. I just was reminded of it. So perfect. She's doing good work, man. Well, I'm, I'm proud of her. You should be now. She just, she's got like, she's, she, we need more whitetail themed clothing and blankets and stuff though. There's like elk antlers and stuff, but I want to see some more like 75 inch whitetail shed blankets. Where's that? Okay. Can you request hey, that? <laughs> I can, you know, I tell you what, there is a there is a website that you can go on and you can create your own fabric with any type of, you know, basically you can make a pattern. Yeah. And they will print it and send it to you. So if you have an idea, let us know and 
I can uh, create whatever fabric you want, and then my wife can make a blanket or a shirt out of it. All right. Well, I want a Wired to Hunt logo blanket. Okay. For my right, future this, baby. For your future baby? <laughs> yep. Like what, eight months? From now? <laughs> I hope not. Well, uh, Who knows? I don't know. Although, uh, although <laughs> maybe this is too much information. This is probably – we're just going to stop. <laughs> we're going to move on. <laughs> hey, moment of truth. Moment of truth. Yeah, this is a different kind of moment of truth than we were just talking about. <laughs> so before we do get into that, though, I do want to really quickly pause for a word from our partners at Sika Gear, and then we'll get into our discussion about the moment of truth and the shop. All right, so as we do every week, we're talking to Sitka product category leader, Dennis Zuck. And today, I wanted to hear from him about what's in store for Sitka in the future. You know, last year, Sitka launched an entire new line of whitetail gear. So what more could possibly be coming? Yeah, that's, that's uh, the secret's in the sauce, right? But uh, I think if you look at what we're, you know, we're coming out with, I mean, almost 70 new pieces, you know, you think, well, what, what are you going to do past that? You know, and, and as we, the funny part of that response is that, you know, when we look at some of the, some of the markets, you know, whether, you know, it's warmer or colder, or, you know, whatever, um, there's so many products that don't exist today that, that, uh, we have in the, in the runs for 17 that we can't wait to get out to folks, but we want to make sure that we're continuing to bring, you know, profound thought to whether it's, you know, if I'm hunting in Louisiana or if I'm hunting in, you know, Colorado, you know, so we, we have some interesting new concepts. We, we believe we've only kind of broke the surface with. So you're telling us to to be excited for a few more years from now too. There's, this isn't all to expect. This isn't all to expect. It's there's uh, there's lots of great ideas that we're already excited about. Believe me, I wish I could just throw them out there now. I can't. <laughs> we'll be waiting with bated breath. So if you are interested in learning more about Sika Gear and that whole new line of whitetail gear that I mentioned, you can visit sikagear.com. And now let's get back to the show. All right, so Dan, as you know, today I wanted our conversation, and it's just you and me, so we can kind of have some fun with this and kind of share some of our, our own personal things. We're not necessarily grilling anyone about this, but I wanted us to kind of explore this topic of the moment of truth about the shot, the moments leading up to the shot, after the shot, all the preparation and work that goes into getting to that moment. Um, and, and this whole idea came to me over this past weekend, like we've been talking about. I was in Iowa with my buddies, and we got to talking about this idea of like the killer instinct. Um, and then that got us into this whole idea of, you know, some people are kind of clutch in the moment. Some people are just like, they can just do it. They just, they're just stone cold, no issues at all with the shot. They just smoke the deer perfect every time. They don't get worked up at all. And then some people get really nervous and have issues with it. Other people, like I know, like my, one of my buddies I was with there, his, his self admittedly said he doesn't really have the killer instinct. Um, and, and I kind of want to talk to you about what that might mean, might or might not mean. Um, but he kind of spoke to the fact that, you know, he doesn't really always want to kill a deer. Like he loves to hunt. He loves the process of hunting, but he doesn't necessarily always love the final action of shooting and killing an animal, which in some weird ways I can kind of relate to as well. I mean, I don't view myself as a, as a killer of any, of any sort. It's kind of a, it's a means to an end. Um, but it raises all sorts of questions and it's an interesting conversation in itself. Um, but that's kind of how I got to this idea. Um, so I guess to kick it off, I kind of want to talk about this whole killer instinct idea um, and how maybe some people have it, some people don't have it, um, and thoughts there. And, and to this example, so my friend, he loves hunting, he loves being out there, 
He, you know, loves the strategy, all these things. But he doesn't shoot a lot of deer. Um, he passes on a lot of deer. He passes on a lot of deer that maybe he, he should shoot, maybe, if you were, like, a hunt, if you want to be a serious deer hunter and want to build up experience. He's never killed a deer with his bow before. Um, so, you you know, lots of times we're like, you know, why didn't you shoot that buck? You know, you've never shot a buck with your bow before. You've never shot any deer. Why didn't you shoot it? And there's always kind of an excuse. Ah, you know, the G2s weren't so nice. Or, ah, you know, it just wasn't quite sure as the buck I was after. And we got to kind of talking this weekend that, you know, part of it's just he sometimes feels like he's kind of making excuses for why he doesn't want to shoot. He does want to shoot the occasional deer, and he has with his gun, and I'm sure he will with a bow. Um, but I don't know. Do you think there's some people that, that have that that killer instinct? And I, I, That word sounds bad. When I say killer instinct, I don't mean like someone who's like, a, a bloodthirsty killer that just wants to kill animals and it has some nasty, vicious, you know, psychopath mentality. That's not what I mean. What I mean is like the ability to, in the end, have the the clutch ability to to close the deal in those final seconds. Do you know what I mean? Is this making yeah. sense at all, or am I rambling and being crazy? No, no, it 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 makes perfect sense. You explain yourself perfectly, and I don't think on this show you need to. Uh, explain yourself when you say killer instinct, because I, I really feel that everybody knows what you're talking about. I, I have, I have buddies who, one guy in particular, you'll never see him post a, a Facebook pic of, you know, of the bucks that he kills. But this past year he killed a 205 incher. Uh, previous year he dropped a 170 incher and the previous year, another 170 incher. So what this guy does is he kills big bucks and he's the kind of guy who it's not like if you were to talk to him and to hang out with him while he hunted, he, it would probably come off like he's not enjoying himself. Like it's more work than it is fun. But this guy closes the deal every year. He will find a big buck and he will kill it every year. And there's just some people that seem to have, it's like this, like, I don't know if it's a knack or like it's just like they just do it. Like there's just no question about it, and they have no. It's like it's not a question of if; it's a question of when. And they don't they don't screw up. It's just like stone cold, you know? Right, right. It, that whole thing about act like you've been there before. Now I'm I. That's one question I should ask this guy: Is did you ever get any type of target panic or buck fever? in the, in the past, but this guy's killed so many big deer or passed so many big deer to get these deer to be absolute giants that he, that he, he, when a, when a big deer makes a presence or an entrance, he knows exactly what to do. He's not, he, he is focused. Like it is the four, you know, the 400th buck he's ever killed, which I don't know. That's probably impossible, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Like he's, he's focused and he's not focused like autopilot focused. He's focused like, you know, like sometime when a big buck steps out and you get, uh, and it's just when you, when you try to think back and replay at what happened in your, in your head, it kind of, it's patchy. Yep. Definitely. Yep. That doesn't happen with this guy. Yeah. He is, he is on it. And I think something you said probably, and I, I think it's a good question, you know, are you born that way or is that a learned, you know, mental state? 
Is that just that they're still you if after you get so experienced, you just have it? I don't know. I mean, you and me both, like I, I've been hunting my whole life. You've been hunting your whole life. And uh, I, I'm still not 100% there. I'm definitely getting better. Um, but I wonder if some of these people, if there's just some type of genetic predisposition to just be in the moment fully and completely and, and not get shaken up, not have nerves, not have any issues with focus. Um, or if maybe it's just simply you've hunted for so long, you've killed so many deer, you've been through that moment so many times that now it's just it's just flawless. I don't know. I, I've definitely seen myself. You know, in a second, I want us to talk about each of our what the moment of truth looks like for you. Um, I was kind of talking about this this with my friends this weekend, um, and I'm getting you know I'm I'm seeing progress in how I react during the moment of truth, definitely. Um, but I'm definitely not you know like that guy. Yeah. Um, so, but it's, it's an interesting conversation. That's for sure. Um, and you know, another thing I, I'm, I'm kind of bouncing around here, but do you, how do you feel about kill? I want to touch on this killer instinct one, one time, one other, one other thing here. Um, and I think like you mentioned, maybe I don't need to explain this to people. Maybe, maybe everybody's like this. I don't know. Um, but I don't, I don't even know where I'm going. I'm having a hard time putting words to how I'm feeling about this. Uh, but I guess we'll move on. How do no, you... Let, let's, I, I think I know what you're trying to say. Help me it's, here. It's when this deer... Are you talking about bucks in particular or killing any deer? Well, it might be any any animal even. See, for me, this is this is how... I, I'll, be, I'll be honest with you. When I was a kid, my... Uh, I, you know, I, ra- I was raised on a farm. Okay. So death was part of life. I mean, my, I would watch my grandpa cut the heads off chickens. You know, I would watch my, uh, grandpa butcher a cow or a hog right in front of me, blood and guts and all that stuff. I mean, it's just a part of life. So, and I, I don't know if I think a lot of it has to do with how you're raised because for me, I don't, th- I really don't think twice about like, I appreciate the life of an animal. I mean, and, and I'm an animal lover. I love dogs and, you know, pets and birds and, and I, I love watching nature. But when it comes to taking the life of like a doe, I know for a fact that I'm going to get the job done and, or that's my goal anyway. And I really can't think twice about it. And I think to tie in this killer instinct to maybe a little bit of buck fever or target panic or something like that, I think that that has if, – if that's in the back of your head when you're drawing back your bow and you're thinking about the – I don't know, maybe the ethics. I don't know if that's necessarily the word. But thinking about how this animal is going to feel, it, it could – it could cause a problem. Yeah, no, definitely. So the way I look at it is it's, it's more binary for me. It's this deer or animal will be getting an arrow or it will not be getting an arrow. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. Um, and I think that kind of ties into what I, where I was trying to go to. I think for me, you know, 
it's it's weird. And maybe maybe everybody goes through this. Maybe not. I don't know. But we you know when I was a kid, like you don't necessarily. Even though I was raised to to have a, a very real appreciation for life and death and and all these types of things, I think. You know, when I was younger, when I was 10 or 12 or 13 or whatever, I got my first BB gun or I got my first 22 and I was shooting away at, you know, anything that was moving, right? That I think most little kids are kind of like that if you're raised in, a, in the outdoors and you want to try to shoot a raccoon, you want to try to shoot a squirrel, you want to shoot the little Tweety Bird on the bird feeder and you're learning all this kind of stuff. Um, and as I've progressed as a hunter, I've become much more serious about a hunter and I've as a hunter, I've become much more serious about my endeavors, right? I'm hunting all sorts of different types of species. I'm going other places. I hunt even more. But on the other side of things, I am very much more thoughtful and concerned about taking a life. And and by that, I mean, I, and I'm not going to look down on anyone else for what they do, you know, whatever. Everyone has their own thing. But I, I have gotten to the point, I do not feel comfortable shooting and killing any kind of animal unless I'm eating it, unless it, there has to be a, a real damn good reason for me to shoot and kill that animal. So for that reason, I don't trap. I don't do other things like that. Nothing against any anyone that does. Nothing against people that want to shoot coyotes or other things because there's plenty of good reasons to do all these different things. But just for me personally, my own personal situation, I, I have a hard time justifying taking a life unless, uh, at least for me, ingesting that animal, eating that animal, putting it to good use to feed my family in some way, that's how I can kind of internally balance the scales in my head. And so, you know, that's where I'm at right now. Um, but that does, I think, to your point, then in the moment of truth, because I feel very, I feel, I feel solid in my knowledge of the reason I'm taking that shot and taking that animal's life and I'm comfortable with that and I've come to terms with that. So I don't have that issue like you mentioned. Um, but there certainly are times like where even even in my case, I kill a lot of deer. I do a lot of hunting. I even do still have times where I pause like like a, a female doe with a couple young deer, a couple, you know, yearlings with her. I've had times where I've I've been out there to shoot a doe, was gonna shoot a doe, and I just saw her out there with the two little does with her frolicking around. I was like, I just don't want to kill that deer. I just in the moment, you know, I've taken female those adult those with young before, and other times I'm like, you know what, I just I don't want to do that. It just doesn't feel right. Um, and I don't know, maybe we all have different thoughts on that, and at different times, and it's it's an interesting conversation. I'm not sure there's <laughs> there's no right answer to any of it, and I'm not sure where we're going with this, but <laughs> these are my thoughts on this, and I don't. Know, it's the kind of things that, like you said, it kind of does tie into it because if you're having a lot of these thoughts in the moment, it certainly could impact your ability to, to bring that shot process to, to fulfillment. Right. I know there's a lot of times where, and this sound, this may sound crazy, but you, you have to think like a predator at, at certain times. And if your goal is to kill an animal for meat, you have to think like a mountain lion or a wolf or a bobcat. Do you think that wolf cares what that deer's thinking? Do you think that wolf or whatever animal, that predator cares if that doe has fawns? You know, nature works itself out. And unfortunately, hunters are part of the food chain. So, um, you know, I've, I've been in that same boat with you where I'm sitting and I watch a, a doe come through and maybe that, uh, maybe that, that fawn or that yearling is still maybe nursing a little bit. I won't shoot that doe. But if I see that that, that that fawn is independent and is eating the grass or the corn or the, um, the acorns or whatever, 
that good chance that mature doe is probably going to get, you know, get, get an arrow depending on what time of year, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And I think to all this, right, we're, we're all at a different place. You know, we all have different thoughts on this and, you know, different ways of justifying why we hunt and kill an animal. Um, but I think maybe the most important thing, and, and we've alluded to this on other episodes when we talk through some of these things, but I, th- I think if anything, I just think it's important that we as hunters take the time to, to have some actual thoughts on this, to think about it. Right. You know, I think, you know, when I was, you know, when I was younger, right, I just hunted because it was what we always did. I never thought about it. I just hunted and I killed and that was, it, it just was. I didn't actually take a, take time to think about it, to think about why and how and what it means and the ramifications and without you know getting too deep and floaty with this i think it's just worthwhile for everyone to to take some time to think about that because right this is a very serious thing we're doing when you take a life it is something not to be taken you know tritely it's not something that's uh fun and games i hate i don't like the term sport hunting or the term when we, when we talk about saying this is a sport because i feel like it's it's way more serious than that, right? I mean, this yeah. isn't tossing a ball around. This is putting a, a razor-sharp arrow through an animal, through its heart, through its lungs, and it's going to die. And so that's it's a really serious thing. And so I, I personally, and again, maybe this is maybe I'm on my on the you know the high mountain talking down. Everyone, I don't mean to be like that, um, but I just think it's important that we all realize the serious of, seriousness of it. Think about it. Keep that in mind. Um, and approach hunting in a serious, respectful manner and not lightly, not like we're just going out there to toss the ball around, um, but understanding the gravity of the situation. So I, I'm done. I'm done with my, <laughs> my preach make, mode. That, that's a good – I mean you make a valid point because um, who's the guy we had on the show who talked Sh- like this? Shane Mahoney. Shane Mahoney. Shane Mahoney. And he, and he said it perfectly until – the day that deer met you, it had lived a free existence and it had lived a, an awesome life of freedom and, you know, and then you took it and you consumed it. What's the difference between you and a wolf or a bobcat or it getting a disease and dying? At some point, you know, a life is linear. Yeah. Yeah. A to B. And it's it's a it's a, it's a very natural and I think a privilege. It's a natural thing and a privilege to be able to be part of that cycle. Yep. I, it's a pretty special thing. And I think you know non-hunters obviously can't relate, and sometimes they you know look down on us or get angry about what we do. But I think um, obviously we that are a part of it know that there's something pretty special going on there. That when you do uh, participate in that, it's uh, it, you know. I think we all sometimes struggle to put words to it, but it's a powerful thing. It's powerful. That's that's one yep. thing I think we can all agree with. So, um, so that all aside, I guess we we're, as we do, we're kind of going off on tangents, sort of sort of related to the main conversation here, but a little bit off. Now let's talk about that moment when it happens. I, I want to share how I, how I function in the moment. I'm curious about how you do. You are let's you're in the tree stand. It's November fifth. A shooter buck, hundred or four year old shooter buck for you in Iowa steps out, comes towards you. Walk me through what your mental process looks like, what your physical process looks like. How do you handle that moment? I'm curious about how your man, mind handles it. What are your struggles? And I've got something I can share on that from my end too. 
So, you know, I wish I could answer that question really easy, but is it okay with you if I kind of go talk about the my past a little bit? That's a, I think that's a great place to start. Okay. So the first two deer that I consider mature bucks that I killed with my bow were bucks that I had never seen before. Okay. I wasn't running trail cameras back then, um, or, or a lot of them. Uh, I didn't have any history with these deer, so I didn't know who they were. I looked at them. I said, mature, it's a shooter. Okay. So back, back when I first started bow hunting, I, my first buck came out of the timber that I knew it was gonna, that I knew I was going to shoot. It looped around me. I'm like, okay, this is a shooter. I draw back and there was really no thought about, there wasn't any extra thought. I knew I had to find my anchor, put the sight where it needed to be and release the arrow. So that was, that was my first two deer that I ever shot were, were just like that because I had no history with them. And I think this, this was kind of part of the problem with my encounter with shipwreck, that 210 inch deer. I had five years of history with this buck. I found sheds off him. I, I was completely obsessed with him. I thought about this buck every day. I had in previous encounters with him. And when he came through, all this stuff started flashing in my head. I had, you know, they say, act like you've been there before. Well, with a buck of that caliber, I had never been there before. So I admittedly got buck fever. All the stuff that was coming all the, all the thoughts in the past was coming in my brain and, and I was thinking about some of those things when I should have been thinking on, on the shot. And I, I admittedly got buck fever and that's not the very first buck that I've ever had buck fever on. I missed. When you say buck fever, what does that look like, feel like for you? To me, it is a fog almost where you look you identify the buck as a shooter and you know that like for me, I I've, I've known these deer through trail camera picks and I, they I've targeted their, their targets because I know going into the season that if they make an appearance or they're, they're a shooter and it, it becomes an autopilot, but it's a foggy autopilot if that makes sense. So yeah. it's like, if you ask me to describe in detail what happened, I really couldn't, I really couldn't do that. You know, I, I remember settling the pin and then shooting the arrow, but I don't remember standing up. I don't remember grabbing my bow. I don't remember waiting until he got into a shooting lane. I can't tell you that kind of detail that I could like. So up until that shipwreck moment, I was, I, I target, some can call it target panic. I, I was not focused. I'd never been there before. So I had to learn that feeling and then I could learn how to how to beat it. All right. So I, I don't know how many years. I think it was the next year or the year after when I shot my. Uh, I think it was 2012 when I shot my buck. I identified it was a shooter. I saw it. You know, I had it. I watched it for maybe 30 minutes before I even shot it. So I had time for my for myself to settle down in the past. If I watched a deer for a long time, I would get more nervous and more nervous and more nervous. Right. 2012 comes by. I knew how to beat those feelings. I started 
taking deep breaths. I started talking to myself, Hey man, you got this, you got this, you got this, you know, but came up and I killed it. All right. And it, it's one of those things where I can remember standing up. I can remember waiting for him to turn broadside when he turned broadside in, in this particular instance, he was head on. I remember drawing back. I remember settling my pin and I remember pulling the trigger and I remember impact and all, I remember all those things. So I know that there, that I was focused enough to have, I, I feel have beat that target panic and that, you know, that, uh, that buck fever, I guess. Now, sir, are you saying you haven't had it since? And, and I don't, I honestly don't think that, you know, I've had, I've had some buck fever and I, I even get it a little bit when I I'm drawing back on does, you know, yep. when I'm like my first deer of the year, like this, this year, my, the first two does that I killed this year were, were the first two deer that I had killed in two years. I hadn't killed a deer in two years. So, so, so I was jacked. I was excited. I was happy. I don't think I would call it. I had target panic because I drilled them both, but the buck that I missed this year was, was not, I don't feel it was target panic. I feel it was just me making a, an error in range. Yeah. But because I can tell you exactly what happened. I stood up, grabbed my bow, you know, waited for him to get into the opening, drew back, and all that stuff. I can tell you in detail. There was there's no fog. I I made an error in range. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think I can relate to a lot of what you said there. Um, you know, for me, when I first started bow hunting, the first few deer I shot, it was like I it was like I blacked out. It was yeah. like this deer. I saw a deer come in. All right, I'm going to shoot it. And then the next thing I know, I shot the arrow and the deer is running off. And I was like, holy smokes, what the heck just happened? Um, and, you know, I think that has changed. Well, definitely has changed with, with practice and with, with experience. Um, but I did worry, you know, that was back when I was shooting, you know, any deer. And then I eventually, you know, made the switch to, okay, I'm going to shoot a mature deer now. And then I started worried, worrying, you know, how am I going to react in the moment with a big buck, with a mature buck. And then I started encountering those situations and I got better at it. Um, and now I've killed, you know, a number of different mature bucks and I still have, I still have, you know, certain aspects of this and then certain aspects I've gotten better at. Um, but I think to, to what you mentioned, I can definitely relate to that foggy autopilot mode. If, if I still have a challenge now and I'm a lot better than I used to be, but I'm by far, I'm far from being perfect. Um, my challenge now is that I get into that foggy autopilot and I rush a little bit on occasion. So what happens for me last times is it, it, my autopilot mode is pretty good now. Like I don't get nervous. I used to get nervous, like shaky, nervous, like holy smokes, this is gonna happen. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Um, like early on, I'm like I'm. It's like business for me now when I'm out there. When I when I see a mature buck, I I talk to myself in the head in my head. Let's I see a shooter buck and I almost every single time now in my head I say here we go. As soon as I, I acquire the target, I register that's a shooter, and then and then like my autopilot mode turns on, and I say, here we go. And I reach, grab that bow, and it's just like a, it's a, a carefully choreographed sequence of events that I've done enough times now that I don't even have to think about it. It just happens. Um, but I'm not necessarily thinking through. It, it's good that I'm not thinking about that. I'm not getting nervous as a big box coming in. I haven't had issues like getting the shakes or you know, overventilating or anything like that anymore. Uh, my issue now has been that in the final moment, 
when I draw back, when I put a pin on the deer, what I have done on occasion still is that that trigger goes off without thinking. So when that pin settles for the first time where I want it to, the finger pulls automatically and there it goes. You know, one second before I should have, or a second before I should have, you know, taken another extra second and, and really focused in. So I've had that happen a couple of times. You know, for example, this year, opening day of archery season here in Michigan, I had a buck come out from underneath me without me knowing he was there and he was walking away and he was walking out of shooting range. So I was like, holy crap, I got to get on him fast before he walks out of shooting range. And as soon as that arrow or as soon as that pin got on him, I, I didn't take the extra time. I released. And because of that, I was just a little bit low, shot underneath him. The same thing happened, a similar thing happened um, two years before that with Jawbreaker, right? We've talked about that story numerous times where he was walking through my shooting lane, almost got outside my shooting lane by the time I was able to get my, my bow drawn. And again, he was almost out of the lane. And as soon as I got the pin on him, I released. But because I didn't take that extra second to settle in and, and calm down for one more second, I didn't see the fact that there was a little bit of a limb sticking out in the way and I hit that. So that is where my, that's my area of improvement. I still need to be able to be in that. I think there's, there's something to be said about being in autopilot mode, you know, where you're not overthinking things. It just happens. But at the same time, you need to be mindful enough in the moment to take that extra second to compose and make sure you are spot on ready. Um, I can do that a lot of the time, but just being completely honest, I don't get it a hundred percent right every single time. Um, so, so that's, that's my challenge where I'm at, but I think, People have all sorts of different variations on that. Like you mentioned, you, you've shared where you've struggled. That's, that's kind of my thing right now. Um, but I think, you know, if I'm thinking about all the different ways that people struggle with this, and I'm curious if you can think of any others, but right, I think there's some people that think too much, right? They overthink every single thing. So because of it, they're, they're not able to be in the moment. They're thinking, okay, how do I do this? When do I do this? Is the buck ready? Is he not going to be in range? Am I in range? Or, you know, going through all these things frantically in their head, um, I think there's some people that just haven't practiced enough and aren't prepared. So, you know, a lot of this this process should be second nature to you, right? It should be something that innately you can do because you've practiced so much. Some people don't do that. So because of that, maybe that leads to people thinking too much in the moment. Um, right. I think there's just nerves, right? People get, you know, actively nervous, like shaking. Like they can't aim and accurately shoot a deer because they're actually physically shaking or they're actively hyperventilating or breathing too heavy or things like that. I mean, that happens. People have physical reactions in that way. Um, I think, you know, to my friend's point, um, uh, my friend's issue, you know, maybe not having that killer instinct, not knowing when to just shoot. Like they'll just actually committing the final act of pulling the trigger. Sometimes people, you know, keep waiting for a better shot or keep waiting for an easier shot or keep waiting for something else when sometimes you just need to shoot. Um, on the other hand, some people maybe shoot when they shouldn't. They're not waiting for the right shot. Uh, maybe then there's like, we could talk target panic, where I think that's a little bit of what happens to me is as I pull the trigger on occasion before I'm completely settled in for the shot, and I think that's kind of a form of target panic in a way, and some people are, are I think, much struggle with that to a much greater degree than me. Um, but I think then there's rushing, right, which, which I've mentioned I sometimes deal with, rushing the shot a little bit. I'm sure some people probably deal with that, maybe even in more extreme examples. Um, but there's a the point of me listing all these things. I think is that there's a lot of there's a lot of challenges when it comes to actually being able to pull off a shot like this, right? I mean, am I missing any of the other different forms of buck fever forms of this issue? You know, I'm sure everybody has their own battles that they have to deal with. I, I can only speak from my experience, but 
you mentioned about maybe pulling the trigger too early. For me, what I've battled with is always questioning when to pull the trigger, not just knowing when to pull the trigger. So I I have caught myself before tapping the trigger, but be, like going, whoa, 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 not yet. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, and, and, and then pulling it. So it's always second guessing and not knowing when to actually pull the trigger. And I think a lot of that has to do with experience and just shooting and shooting and shooting and shooting and shooting and, um, knowing you're, you know, you shoot so much that it goes on autopilot. I know that this, this past summer, my goal was to become a better archer and shoot way more because I wanted to make sure that if I had the encounter with an elk, I was going, I could confidently say, Hey, yeah, this isn't going to be an issue, but you know, you can practice all you want. You can have, you know, I feel that that does help in the autopilot situations where, you know, your form takes over and your muscle memory takes over. But there's something about a whitetail buck that you can be as focused, you can be, it can make a, a calculated person, an anal retentive person, lose their shit. Yeah. And that you cannot, I mean, unless you have experience with big bucks, (laughs) there's a good chance that the first time you do encounter a big buck that you're going to, you're going to have some form of buck fever. Yeah. I think you make a, you make a good point. I think, you know, if we, if we're kind of shifting now to how do we deal with this? I think number one is practicing a lot. You know, like you said, like you did, you know, making sure that you practice as much as you possibly can because it does help, right? It definitely does help. If you know, if you're really confident, like a lot of it comes down to confidence, right? If you're very confident in the fact that you can make the shot because you've made that shot 10,000 times over the course of the summer, that helps. But like you said, it's a different story when it's a, when it's a real animal, you know, whether it's a big buck, which is at a whole another level, or if it's a doe, even with a doe, I think it's still a totally different thing than a target, obviously. Um, so I think first and foremost, if I'm trying to, you know, get better at handling the moment of the truth, I'm practicing a ton, you know, during the summer, during the spring, during the fall. But then also, I think there really is something to be said about gaining experience, actually hunting and killing deer. And, you know, there's some guy, I think one thing that people struggle with, and I'm not sure what your thoughts are on this, Dan, but I think it's a mistake for someone to start hunting right away. Let's say a new bone hunter and they watch TV, and they listen to this podcast, or they read magazines, and they hear about everybody shooting mature bucks. Hold out for mature bucks. Hold out for a big buck. So this guy or girl who's never hunted, never killed a deer before, goes into it thinking they have to wait for a 140-inch 4-year-old. And then because of that, they don't shoot any deer for their first year, for two years, three years, whatever. And then if the first time they do see that 4-year-old, they've never had an experience in that situation before, and they completely right. break down. I really think it's... Me personally, I think it's a better idea to to take steps, to take baby steps, to to hunt and kill a deer first. You know, have lots of experience killing does or young bucks, whatever it is, to to learn how to handle that situation, to become comfortable in that situation, and then you know if you want to move from there. Um, but I think there's there's really something to be said about you know gaining experience, actually shooting and killing a deer. Um, that's that's the best way to improve on all this. I think is just actually being in the real moment and handling it. And so, you know, sometimes that means shooting does or 
whatever. Um, so for me, you know, I, I like to, sh- I like to doe hunt because we eat a ton of venison. Um, so I have, you know, thoroughly enjoyed that because I know every time I'm out there hunting a doe and, and have that shot in that encounter, I know that I'm going through a process that will help me with all the other goals I have too. It's every time I shoot a deer, I'm practicing that moment of truth. I'm trying to handle it better. I'm trying to take one more step in the right direction. So I'd encourage people, if you're not already and you struggle with this, shoot some does, get some experience in the field. There's nothing that can replicate, you know, a target can never replicate a real animal. So can I, can I share a crazy idea? I'd love you to. Okay. I'd love it if you did. I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying. Yes, please do. <laughs> you you love you love me. Yeah, <laughs> maybe that's Basically what I'm trying what you're to say. Saying. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, in the past, when it comes to deer hunting season and my diet, I am a sugar fat, you know, basically junk food, fried food, completely, you know. A lot of the times when I, you know, I'll either stuff my, I won't eat anything in the morning, but then in the afternoons, I'll stuff my face at lunch to the point where I'm full and maybe it's not the best food and then go sit in a tree stand and you get that full feeling. I don't know if that's, you ever have that. And (laughs) do I ever get full? Yes. no, No, I mean like. You know, like it's it's deer season. You're you're pounding apple pies from the gas yeah. station and Mountain Dews. You know, yes. You're... Do you remember that picture I posted of my rut food last year? Oh, yeah. And all the criticism I got because of yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, don't, I, I, I know don't what our <laughs> I know what our diet was on the way to and from Idaho. Yeah. So. <laughs> so yes, so, I can relate. <laughs> so and you get that you get that kind of you're you're climbing up your tree stand. You're completely full, and you get those heavy heartbeats. If that makes sense, you ever get that where it's kind of like it, your heart's beating through your stomach because you're so full and it's and it's not you're just you're almost out of breath because you ate so much then you went and walked in the woods. Eh, I guess I don't know that one. I mean, okay. I, I've been out of breath before, but I guess not the heavy heart thing. But I, right, and I'm not saying it's like I'm going to have a heart attack, but <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> but you know, you're. I feel that diet may have a little bit to play. So this year, I. Uh, the main reason I didn't drink coffee before I went into the tree stand every morning was because I was afraid that I would, I would have to go number two. Yeah. You don't want to blow out. You don't want to blow out. Right. (laughs) I don't want to have to get down to my stand at the perfect time. So I, I, I I don't drink coffee in, you know, after or before my morning hunts. So I noticed that I was more like I was more not awake, but less, uh, I don't know, like more focused, less jittery. Uh, I wasn't, yeah. you know, I just, I felt like I was supposed to, like I was meant to be in the tree stand. I don't know. This is weird. No, I know but, what you're saying. Yeah. And then I also, my snacks this year uh, for deer season consisted of like apples and carrots. And I did not eat until I was full to go in before I went in for my afternoon hunts. And I noticed a world of difference. I noticed that I wasn't, you know, I was more with it mentally and physically when I had my encounters this year. And I, I don't know. I think I, I feel that diet plays a role in that moment of truth where 
your heartbeat starts pumping and there's not a ton of sugar in there and there's not a ton of fat, you know, slowing. I don't know how the, really how the body works. I'm not a, I'm not a human biologist, but I just know that I, from my personal experience, I feel that with a better, what you're intaking can affect how you act in that high, when your body goes into that adrenaline dump and that high, that, you may not call it a stressful situation, but your body is putting you into a moment of ang- uh, anxiety and stress. Yeah, I uh, I think I agree with you. I think you're absolutely right. Um, and, and not just your diet, but I think in general, just your overall physical health. Um, mm-hmm. So also your exercise level. I mean, you know, having having a relatively fit body and physical level of physical fitness, I think absolutely will help you in these situations. Um and that's something you know I've I've definitely tried to work on you know given the Western hunting and stuff we do, but I, I can certainly improve there too. Um, and I, actually, one of these podcasts coming up, we are working on getting someone who can help us have this discussion about you know the importance of physical health, you know not just to the guys that are out west pounding mountains and everything, but even for us whitetail guys, um, because the situation is exactly like what you just mentioned, Dan. Um, that I think there there definitely is something to that. You know, our body is a tool. And we need to have that body, that tool fine-tuned and working as best as possible to handle, like you said, these very stressful situations. Um, so that's a great point. I think, um, I think, well, yeah, I think, I think you're spot on. Um, I want to take a step back to practicing. If we're, if we're talking about dealing with this situation, so I guess what have we talked about? We've talked about you know, having experience in the field, shooting deer. We've talked about fine-tuning your body, trying to be healthy. Um, I want to take a step back to the practice element. So when it comes to actually practicing during the summer or in the off-season or whatever, um, I wanted to walk through a couple different things I've learned that have helped me be practice better. Um, and Dan, I'm sure you'll have some thoughts on this too, but here are a couple things that I've found and heard from others that they've done have helped them become a better practicer. Because I think, you know, first and foremost, yeah, shoot a lot, practice a lot, practice consistently. I think trying to do it, you know, not just, you know, every one, once a month shooting, but consistently getting out there and practicing, you know, either every day or a couple times a week or some type of pattern of use where your body, excuse me, where your body and mind is actively engaged in the act of shooting, you know, on a consistent basis. So that's just part of your daily life or whatever it might be. Um, I also think, you know, and everyone's different on this. Some people don't start shooting till just before the season. Um, <clears throat> I would encourage people, at least for me, it has been helpful to, to be shooting for much longer than that. I don't shoot all year round, but pretty much once it gets warm outside, I'm shooting for those, you know, four or five, six months or whatever before the deer season. And I do think that helps. Um, that's one thing I would, I would mention. Um, but then, you know, when you're actually out there shooting, don't just spend all your time shooting in a normal, comfortable position from the same distance all the time. Try different things. So I'd say, you know, practice from different positions. So sometimes be sitting, you know, sometimes you have to take shots while you're sitting in a tree stand, or maybe you hunt from a ground blind. So practice sitting, practice kneeling, practice standing from a small platform, practice from a high angle. So go up on your deck or stand on top of your roof if that's a safe thing to do, or or put a tree up or put a tree stand up on a tree in your yard and shoot from that. Practice from different angles and different, you know, types of you know, if you've got a tree stand, you're standing on a narrow platform, that changes how you shoot. So practice in those situations. Um, practice turning and shooting behind you, you know? I mean, right, Dan, when you're actually shooting a deer, it's never as simple and easy and straightforward as it is when there's a target right in front of you, right? I mean, Absolutely not. 
So I think that's an important thing to try to prepare for those situations. Um, another way that I think to deal with this type of high-pressure situation of actually shooting a live animal, I think trying to up the stakes in your practice in some way. You know, make that shooting, make there has to be some type of ramification, some type of pressure on your practice sometimes. So sometimes that might be going out there with other people. So, you know, go shoot with a bunch of friends. And if you don't think there's a little more pressure on you when five guys are all watching you shoot, I think there will definitely be a different level of pressure on you, and that's going to help you get better in those pressure situations. Or shoot with a buddy and place a bet on every shot. You know, if I don't get this shot in the 12 ring, I owe you 20 bucks or I owe you 10 bucks or whatever. Just by doing something like that, again, adds. <laughs> I'm serious. I'd be broke way really fast. <laughs> it just it ups the ante, and I think anytime you can up the ante on a shot, it forces you to operate in a slightly higher stress situation. And every time you can do that, you're getting a little bit closer to that, you know, in the field situation, right? Um, what else? Shoot at long distances, right? I think that if you are going to do lots of us deer hunters, most of our shots are within 30 yards, I think, 15 yards, 20 yards, 30 yards. Those are typically a lot of the shots we get. But if you practice at 50 yards and 60 yards or further out, if you can get good in the yard shooting at those distances, those 20-yard shots on a real-life deer are going to be a lot easier. Um, so what else? Do you have any other tips for actually practicing, Dan, when it comes to you know better practice that will translate to better shooting in the field? You know, one thing, and I don't know if this actually helped me or not. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. But what I w- there, there were times where I would draw back with arrow in hand, it up full, you know, ready to go. I would draw back, settle my pin, like I like I was gonna shoot, but then I would let down. And and not shoot, and then I would draw back again, and get settled up, and then shoot. So hmm. I I don't know why I did it. Maybe it's because I read somewhere that that's what another person did, but I I did that for a while. And I'll be honest, this year, and it, it could be a combination of everything that I did this summer, I would first thing I did was I shot way more this summer than I ever have. Second was I did I sometimes, and it would be like the very first five or six arrows that I shot where I would pull back, settle in, let down, and then pull back again and shoot. Um, there, there were times where I would jog to pull my arrows out and then jog back to where I was going to shoot. And then my heart rate would be, yeah, you know, it wasn't a sprint, but um, because knowing me, I would trip and put a broadhead through my uh, heart. <laughs> <laughs> but but no, like that. And then what was the other thing that I did? Um, there were times where some days where I would only shoot one arrow. And yeah, yeah. it forced me to really focus because I wouldn't want to walk all the way from 70 yards to or you know 60 yards to the target on a shitty shot because I would be pissed and then I would go back and I would focus even harder on trying to get to where uh, I you know I did oh and one last thing that I I felt probably helped me the most of anything and it's kind of a combination of two things but one was don't overshoot because I knew that if I would continue to shoot and shoot and shoot, I'd get frustrated and I would, 
you know, you're, you're get so tired from shooting you're, cause your muscle, there is fatigue and my accuracy would go away and I'd be mad. And then I would have to, and I, then I always said, end on a good note. So even if I was, even if I was at, you know, doing crappy at 30 or 40 yards, I would always end on a good note. And that meant if I had to, I would walk up to 20 yards and I would pop a couple at 20 yards right in the bullseye and then end on it. And I ended on a good note. Yeah, I, I do. I do something very similar to that. Um, and it's kind of like, there's a, I, I can't remember what the technical term is. I'm not any kind of gym jockey. Um, there's some type of weightlifting methodology um, where you'll do um, you know, a certain number of reps at a certain weight, and then you continue to go down in weight, uh, but increase the number of reps you do because it's, it's harder to do the heavy weight. So you just reduce the weight, but you keep doing it. So you're able to continue practicing. You're able to continue lifting weights, but you're just reducing the weight. Um, but it's still a challenge. So it's kind of like what I do. I do something similar with my shooting. I'll start out a very long range and I'll be practicing. And then, as you mentioned, muscle fatigue starts setting in. So then I come in 10 yards closer. So at 10 yards closer, I can shoot. I can still shoot fine. And it's, it's a similar challenge. So when you, once you get down to 30 yards and then 20 yards, you've been shooting the longest, but even though you have that muscle fatigue, you can still nail it at 20 yards. So you're, you're able to do exactly like what you said, end on a good note while, you know, working your way out from a challenge to now at 20 or 30 yards, you're, you're so tired that it's somewhat of a challenge too. So, um, I think your idea of jogging was a really good one. I do something similar. I would do like a sprint around the barn and then I come back, shoot one arrow, do a sprint around the barn, shoot, um, again, to do exactly what you said, try to replicate that increased heart rate. Um, I like your idea of, of drawing and then letting down because, right, that's a situation that a lot of us have to deal with in the tree. Sometimes you have to draw back and then you have to let down and you have to draw back, let down. Um, something I do that's kind of similar is I will have certain lengths of time that I force myself to hold the, the bow back before I shoot. So I'll draw and force myself to hold it for 30 seconds before I'm allowed to shoot, um, just trying to build up that that strength and being able to hold and, and keep my composure for that full time until I can finally shoot. Because I don't know about you, but I've had a couple situations where I've been stuck at full draw for a crazy long period of time. Um, like my Ohio buck in 2014, uh, not jawbreaker, but the doppelganger, that buck, I, I was at full draw for over a minute and a half. It was crazy. And I don't know how I managed to do it because I probably couldn't do it today and, and sh get as good of a shot as I did on that deer. But it was a long time, and I think practicing for that probably helped a little bit. So that's something I would do. Um, gosh, there was one other thing that you mentioned that I liked um, that I had. Oh, you know what? Practice not just in like a T-shirt and shorts in the summer, but sometimes try practicing with your hunting gear on because um, that will change how your shot, you know, if you've got a big puffy jacket on or something, that might change your shot. So that's something to try to do. And I think my final thought on practice is don't stop practicing during hunting season. I think a lot of people practice in the summer or a month before, or two months before, but once deer season starts, they start hunting, but then they don't shoot their bow anymore. I think that's a big mistake. Okay. Um, so, so I try to keep what I, I struggle with that. Like it's easy for me to get lazy and not want to go outside and shoot once I'm super busy during the season and traveling and all that. So 
I've tried to get better at that by making my bow easily accessible, by hanging my door by the bow of the barn. So whenever I'm going by there, it's just, there's the bow, there's an arrow. It's not like I have to take it out of the case, unstrap it, find the arrows, get all that crap. I, I just make everything as convenient as possible. So it's just, you know, at one point I used to keep my bow, my bow hung up next to my back door so that I would just step out the door and, and I'd keep a target outside the front door, back door. So I'd open the back door and there's a target and I had grabbed my bow off a hook and I could shoot right there. Um, just to, you know, like you said, take one shot and um, have that pressure of making that one shot count. I think that's a smart thing to do. If you at least do that during the season, that's going to help you tremendously, I think. I agree. So those are some practice ideas. Um, what about dealing with buck fever, dealing with the moment of truth, actually in the moment of the truth. Is there anything that you've done? Is there anything you do in those moments now to help you clear your head or to help you better perform in that moment? Well, uh, you know, if there's a rack and it's big, then I will – first, I, I you have to look at the rack because – for me that identifies if it's a shooter or not. I mean, it, part of it if, or if it's a deer that I know, uh, because not necessarily, you can't always really tell a body size, you know, mature level if the deer is looking head on at you. Um, but one thing that I do is if I, I know it's a deer that I want to shoot, I will identify where it's at and then I will try to focus on its tail or its back legs and just be completely try to keep, stay away from its head. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and then, or if I know it's coming at me, I'll, I will look at my bow sight. So I will, I will just always be on that site. So at, when I draw back, I'm, I'm not looking at the target. I'm looking at my site. So when I draw back, I'm, my eyes are, my eyes are, my eyes are following my sight to the target and not me trying to focus on the target and bring my sight to it. So I am – I don't, I don't know why I do it, but it, it just it, – it helps me stay away from the, the rack and, and focus on the, the, the act of shooting and not the, the – the, the goal or the target, I guess. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I, I definitely do something similar, you know, especially if it's with a, you know, a big buck, you know, the more you look at that rack, the greater chance it might be of you getting more worked up about it, more excited about it. So, so I do the same thing. I try once I identify, you know, is it a buck I know, look at the body or whatever it might be to determine whether it's a shooter. Once I determine it's a buck, I'm going to shoot. I do the same thing as you. I don't look at the head anymore. Uh, I look at the body, the back of the body, anything I can do to look for that rack. But it's funny, because of that, you know, this past year when I shot Glenn, I I did not look at his antlers. I just I looked at I saw a glimpse of them and I looked at his body and in a split second I said shooter, and I never paid any attention to you know his antlers and his identifying characteristics at all after that. So even though I had Glenn standing at 20 yards for you know a handful of seconds, enough time that I had time to grab my bow, draw back, and shoot him. I had no idea. I had just shot a buck that I'd been obsessively watching and studying for three years. Had no idea because I just refused to look at the head. And so in that case, it you know worked out really well. Um, so I think it does make a big difference if you can keep yourself focused on a less anxiety-inducing part of the deer that makes a difference. Another thing that might work 
and I, I did that. I did it this year on the buck that I, I couldn't end up stopping. You know, I told you I had that encounter with that buck that was dogging a doe real hard yeah. and, uh, I couldn't get him to stop. So instead of turning your body and following the deer, you, sh- you should go to where you think the deer is going to be shot. Like, cause you're not, you're not going to shoot the deer when you first see him at, you know, 70 yards through the timber you're going to wait till he gets into one of your shooting lanes and then you're going to draw back and shoot him. So, or, you know, you draw back prior to him entering that shooting lane. So what I, what I did this year was I knew that this buck was on a trail. The doe already came through. He was going to walk right through this shooting lane. So I got to the point where I am, I am, my body is positioned for the encounter at the shooting lane. So I'm not I'm not having my arrow point or my bow pointed at him the entire time and I'm not turning with him. I'm motionless and I'm ready for that particular shot and I'm I'm looking in my shooting lane. I'm not following that buck. Yeah, yeah, I do the exact same thing. As soon as I see that there's a shooter, I position myself for the shot where I think it's going to happen. Right. Um so that you said so you don't need to be moving around when he's close, you put yourself position as quickly as possible. So then you are silent, ready, waiting. Right. Um, and that seems like a no brainer, but I find myself always, you know, there's times where if a deer comes in behind me or for, you know, the position I, I always try to have my tree stands, you know, where I would, I'm sitting, I would be, if I'm sitting down, I'm facing away from where I think the action is. So if there is an encounter, I, I can I, I feel like I can get away with a little bit more movement because there is a tree between me and the shooting lane, if that makes sense. Yep. So so I always try to position my, myself that way. And there's times where if a deer comes in to the side of me, I'm I catch myself not focusing on where I need to shoot him, but just following him the until he gets to that point. Yeah. Yeah. No, you can't shoot them. You can, I mean, if there's branches or trees in the way, you can't shoot them anyway. It's tempting though, to, to yeah. want to be facing the deer and watching it. But I think it's a, it's a really good idea to, to just situate yourself right away and wait. Um, and to, to that point, something I do that has made a big difference for me is as soon as I get into a tree, I get in there, I get set up, I get strapped in, hooked into my harness and everything. I practice drawing back my bow in every different shooting lane that I might shoot a deer in so that I, I make sure I can get drawn back without hitting the back of my tree or without my harness strap getting tangled up or, or whatever it is I practice. So I draw my back, my bow back three, four different times. Every time I climb into that tree to just make sure, you know, no matter what, I know that I can get my bow drawn and I can get a shot off, you know, cause sometimes there might be a limb that's too close and that if you didn't practice, you wouldn't know that, Oh shoot. When I try to draw my bow back, my arrow will knock that limb or this trunk will, will, my elbow will get stuck on that different things like that. I've had that happen in the past. So, so now I prep every time and that's made a huge difference because there's been a couple times where, you know, if I hadn't done that, I would have totally screwed up on a deer, but, but instead I knew that I would be able to, you know, maneuver into this position because I'd already practiced it and it resulted in, you know, me being able to pull off a shot that I wouldn't have before. Um, or in the other case, I've had times where I thought I'd be okay and then I tried to practice it and I realized, no, this limb or whatever is going to be in the way. And then I was able to saw it out of the way or, or 
fix something so they didn't have that issue. So I think that's a big one. Um, so right, we're we're talking practicing drawing back prep preparing to maneuver your body into position another thing that i do um once a deer comes into range or once a deer appears that i'm going to shoot um we kind of talked about but i start having like a mental dialogue with myself a little bit so like i said here we go as soon as that i kind of say here we go and then my auto my autopilot mode sort of starts operating um but i but i do try to keep talking myself a little bit you know keeping myself in the moment a little bit because i think there's a difference between going into autopilot mode versus blacking out. So for me, it's like finding that line in between. I want to be, I want to be like second nature, but I also want to be present still. So for me, I've sort of developed a mantra that helps me kind of lock back in at the end. And I'm not saying I do this perfectly. Um, but for example, two years ago when, you know, the jawbreaker debacle happened, I hit that deer, didn't recover him. And I, part of that, I blamed on the fact that I rushed that shot. So to try to improve on that, I tried to refocus myself with a mantra that would just help remind me to to become more present in that moment. And I just said, you know, from then on, when I practiced that year, before every time I was getting ready to take a shot, I would just say jawbreaker, jawbreaker, jawbreaker. And that was like this way of reminding myself, take an extra second, focus, stay present. And so that's what I did every time I practiced that after that shot, you know, after the jawbreaker thing. When I practiced, when I said my mantra, it just kind of brought me back into the moment. And I did that, and that helped me with my shot, you know, two and a half weeks later when I killed that Ohio buck. I've also used a a mantra, you know, just, and when I say mantra, I just mean like some type of phrase that you can say to yourself to just remind yourself to, to, to get you back into it. So another one for me has been focus on form. Because if I can remind myself to focus on form, that's going to remind me to to go through my steps, to go through my shot sequence, and not just blast through it and all of a sudden shoot the bow. But remember, have your make sure your anchor point's good, make sure your arms where it needs to be, make sure you've checked the level on your sight. If I can remind myself just just for a split second to stay in the moment, that makes a big difference for me. So having some kind of mantra, um, I know has helped me a little bit, and I've heard from a number of other much better archers who use something similar to to just again refocus you get you back in there because i think again i think the key is to make it second nature be on autopilot but not blacked out not unfocused so i don't does that make sense do you do anything at all like that dan i'll be honest with you i talk to myself all the time when i'm when i'm getting ready to shoot a bow and to be not to sound weird but i do it all the time like when i'm walking in the woods where you're just like make sure you're quiet you know like i don't know why i do it it's it's almost like (laughs) Yeah, I'm, I probably do too. I, I'm motivating myself. I, I, it might not be out loud, but I'm motivating myself to be the best hunter that I can be. And you know, it's like, okay. Or when I'm setting up a tree stand where it's like, no, no metal to metal, no, no metal to metal contact. You know, yeah. it, it's just it's things like that. And my mantra when I shoot my bow is in, I used to play rugby in college. And whenever there was a scrum, the ref, the sir or the ref would say, touch, pause, engage. And that's when the two sides would come together and they'd throw the ball under in the scrum. Huh. And that's what I say when I, when I shoot my bow. And it, it has nothing to do with the actual action of there. But as I draw my bow back, I say touch. And I touch my kisser to the corner of my lip, pause, and I hold my breath to settle I take that, you know, that engage and then I pull the trigger. So it's touch, 
pause, engage. And it's just three steps that I use to, I guess, get on the target. I like that. And I think that that ties in perfectly to another aspect of, of being a, a good archer and also being able to shoot well in the field is having some kind of shot sequence, you know, knowing, having a series of steps that you follow from drawing back, anchoring, getting the, the, the target into your sight picture and releasing, having some type of consistent sequence every single time you shoot, being able to have that sequence, nail it, make it second nature, and then be able to perform that in the actual field will allow you to stay consistent because the, the key to archery accuracy is doing the same thing exactly the same way over and over and over. Um, I mean, that's how you accurately shoot a bow. So if you can implement some kind of sequence of actions and make it second nature, and then you don't have to think about it, that is going to allow you to, to, to shoot better when it's actually a deer as well. So having a mantra that, that walks you through that, whether it be, you know, touch, engage, pat, whatever you said, um, <laughs> whatever it is, or focus on form like me, um, I think that's a, that's a good idea. And, and you mentioned breathing, taking a deep breath before the shot. That reminded me a really important thing for me to, to especially when I was struggling earlier on in my hunting to like calm down when a deer was coming in. Whenever you do start having those nerves, and, and sometimes I still do, um, if you do have nerves, a deer is walking in or you see a big buck off in the distance and you get pumped up, just slow, steady, full breathing, you know, consistent, heavy, deep breathing. Deep breathing exercises can really actually make a physical difference with you. So for me, it's take a full deep breath in all the way, fill my lungs, pause for a beat, release the whole thing out. And so if I have a long encounter where there's a deer that, like, for example, with the very first time I saw a jawbreaker, this is three years ago or four years ago or whatever, the very first hunt I saw him, I watched him for like an hour and 45 minutes, hour and a half, something like that. He was at the other end of the field, and for an hour and a half, he slowly made his way down to me. So like for the first like 20, 30 minutes, I was cool as a cucumber. And then like for whatever reason, like 45 minutes into it or something, all of a sudden like the nerves got to me, and all of a sudden it just started shaking like crazy. And I was like, whoa, you got to chill out. So I just did this deep breathing exercise over and over again, and it just kind of... I don't know why, but it just calms your body. You know, that's something I used to do when I get nervous before like a job interview or anything like that. Deep breathing helps me. Um, and from what I understand, I think it's just something that helps most people in general. So that's something if you do have issues with nerves or you're physically getting worked up, try that slow, deep breathing. And that I think is something that can just bring your body down a notch again and allows you to just be in a little more of a, of a level place when you do get that shot. So that's something. Um, what else? We talked about mantra, shot sequence, breathing. Um, you know, here's one. If you know that you struggle with this, with the moment of truth, if you struggle with buck fever, self-limit yourself. Realize that you have a challenge here and limit yourself to a effective distance. Don't get crazy and try to shoot long-distance shots if you know that this is something you consistently struggle with. Because obviously... A 30 or 40 yard shot is difficult on its own, let alone if you are hyperventilating or can't focus. So if you know that this is something you're struggling with, have the, um, the mental, do, no, realize that you need to bring it in because a 15 yard shot or a 20 yard shot is going to be a lot easier to handle when you're all worked up than a 40 yard shot. So I would just say, be realistic about what your effective range is and realize how buck fever can impact that. I mean, do you think that's fair, Dan? I do. I don't, I, to be honest with you, I don't even, if I have a 40 yard shot in the timber, it's purely on accident. 
I all my shooting lanes at most go, you know, maybe third little out 30 yards. I don't I, I try to I try to do exactly what you said and limit my shooting lanes to somewhere around 30 yards. And in the timber, I mean, that's still a poke when you when you think about 30 yards from a tree stand. That's still a decent shot. And uh, the areas that I hunt anyway, if I wanted to sh- cut a 40-yard shooting lane, I'd be there all day long shoot, cutting that one lane. Yeah. <laughs> Some of these spots would be pretty tough. I think, I think sometimes people can shoot great behind the house, right? They say, oh, I shoot awesome at 50 yards and 60 yards and 70 yards. I put it right in the 10 ring every time. And they assume that that'll translate when you're actually out there with a deer. And so because of that, they take these crazy long shots that I think in a lot of situations you really shouldn't be given the fact that you are operating in a totally different type of situation when there's a deer in front of you. Um, So I would encourage people to take a real hard look at really how you can perform out there in the field versus behind the house and, and don't take a risk. Don't risk wounding a deer or missing a deer or the worst thing being wounding a deer. Um, don't do that just because you think you might be able to pull off the shot just because you do it in the, in the backyard all the time. I think it's much, it, it's the responsible thing to do. I personally believe, and it's a much smarter thing to do as a deer hunter too, to, to limit yourself, be a little bit more conservative when it comes to actually shooting a deer in the field. Right. So I don't know. Th- those are kind of the thoughts I had as I've been thinking through this, you know, how to deal with the moment of truth, how to prepare for it beforehand, how to deal with it in the actual moment. Um, is there anything else you would mention, Dan, anything else we missed? I mean, we could get crazy here for a second and, you know, have your friend throw, throw fake punches at you, you know, and try to get you to flinch while you're drawing back your bow. You know, (laughs) don't, don't try this at home. I guess I should have said first or have like someone shoot Roman candle at you (laughs) and just get so crazy that you're, you're, you won't black out from, uh, you know, because a deer walking through the woods is safe as opposed to maybe some guy trying to hit you with a hammer or trying to, you know, throw firecrackers at you. I'm not going to recommend anything Dan just said there. But... <laughs> and it's probably it's probably the best. You have a you have a, a legal team, right? Yeah, we're going to need to uh, to bring them on board for this because there's going to be people saying, well, my buddy shot a Roman candle into my face while I was shooting. <laughs> Why'd you guys recommend that? <laughs> no, I, in all seriousness, I know what you mean. It, it, you know, it's like, again, trying to replicate the stress and the anxiety and the pressure of a deer. If you can replicate some type of stress or distraction or whatever it might be, that's that's going to help you. Or, you know, shooting a bow while your wife or girlfriend takes a pregnancy test. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> Do you have experience with that, Dan? No. Okay. <laughs> well, on that note, <laughs> I think uh, I think we covered it. I, I will say one thing. I don't, and Dan, I'm speaking for you here, but you tell me if I'm wrong. But I don't think Dan or I, either of us, would claim to be the end all, be all expert on this. We both have work to do. We both can get better. So we've both we've both had our struggles. I think we've both improved. We're learning. We're getting better. But I think we both still have room to get there. Um, and that's probably true for most people listening. But if you have other ideas, if you have other suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Um, if you think something we said is crazy, 
you can tell us that too. So feel free to hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or leave a comment on this blog post because I think we all can learn about this. Um, and we all, I'm sure, can relate in different ways to this challenge. So with all being said, I think we'll wrap it up. So if you have not yet, gosh, it would be awesome if you could leave a rating or review on iTunes for this podcast. That is a huge help. So thank you in advance for doing that. If you haven't yet checked out the Whitetail Q&A podcast, that's the other show that I produce. Definitely search for that on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And Dan has a great podcast too, The Nine Finger Chronicles. So check that out. You should have plenty of deer hunting audio content to keep you busy throughout the week if you follow those three. So thanks in advance for checking that out. And then finally, we do need to thank our partners who help keep this podcast running. So big thanks has to go out to Sitka Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonix, Carbon Express, Lacrosse Boots, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And finally, most importantly, thank you all for joining us today. We appreciate it. Until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.